0: You're listening to Contact High with me, Rabbi Lizzie Heidemann, bringing you inspired down-to-earth Judaism in conversation. This week, as we celebrate Tu B'Shvat, the Jewish holiday celebrating the trees, I wanted to introduce you to a longtime friend of mine, Rabbi Yonatan Nerrell, the founder and executive director of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. Based in Jerusalem, he is a leading voice bridging the worlds of environmental sustainability and religion. I've known Yonatan for 20 years, and during that time, he has always taken two things incredibly seriously, Torah and the environment. He's also the co-author of the new commentary on the Bible, the Eco-Bible, an ecological commentary on Genesis and Exodus, which shines a new light on how the Hebrew Bible and our sages and teachers over thousands of years have urged human care of nature as a central message of our spiritual wisdom tradition. I was deeply moved speaking to Yonatan and hearing his commitment both to our faith and our planet. And I think you will be too. Take a listen.
1: In terms of ecological awareness, I mean, you know, some people think that religion is one thing and ecology is another thing and never do the two meet. So part of the work that I've been doing is revealing that religion actually has deep things to say about ecological sustainability. And that's true in the Jewish tradition you know, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says that God placed the human being in the garden to serve it and conserve it. And uh, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory taught that uh, he specifically translated as to serve it and conserve it, because what we're supposed to be doing here is taking care of God's creation and, and living in balance and you know, God forbid harming and, and degrading it. There's a, a midrash that's well known that says that God showed Adam all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to him, "Be, see how beautiful and praiseworthy are my works. That what I created, I created for you, but be careful not to destroy or degrade it, because if you do, there will be no one after you to repair it."
0: One question I have is like, how how does it work? I've heard that midrash before. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's one of the sort of classic environmental midrashim that the idea that nobody's going to come after us to make, fix our mess, sort of like mm-hmm. I'd say to my three-year-old when he makes a mess on the floor and then walks in the other room, like, I'm not your maid. Mm-hmm. Go, you know, put the blocks away. You made this mess and you fix it. Um, and so you you actually just wrote a book. You you co-authored this book, The Eco Bible. Um, and I've been making my way through it. And at Parsha by Parsha, you, you actually sort of get into the specifics, the nitty-gritty of the language of the Torah. So it's not just this one midrash about, you know, if you break it, there's nobody who's coming after you to fix it, which may be true, but it somehow hasn't moved me in specific ways to take specific action. And and here in this book, actually you have like chapter, you know, page after page, chapter after chapter in the Torah of very specific ways the Torah addresses environmental questions, issues, challenges practices. Could you, could you share a couple of those, like specific, specifics?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. And It's really gratifying to me that you have uh, had my book and are, are reading it. Uh, we've been making an effort to get this in particular in the hands of, of rabbis and priests and pastors, um, but it's also relevant for lay readers and is made accessible for even someone who, who doesn't have any Jewish background there's there's a number of teachings that you know relate in a deep way to ecological sustainability in the Torah, and so part of what we've done here is to try to show that that it, that ecological awareness is actually organic to the Torah. It's not something that is, uh, you know, uh, coming from the, the tree huggers of uh, the 1960s and and the hippies, as some people think. Uh, you know, so this week's Torah portion. Um, is, is the tour portion of Bo and uh, where the the last plagues take place, uh, and and the plagues themselves are a a teaching that relates to ecology. It's, they're they're plagues of nature that affect people. First, the water turns to blood. And the the Nile River is the lifeblood of Egypt. And then the frogs go out of balance. It's interesting because frogs are an indicator species according to environmental ecologists. And so with climate change, the the frogs in Central America have been dying um, more than uh, than other species. Uh, And so the first animal that goes out of balance in Egypt are the frogs. And then there's the lice and uh, wild animals. Uh, And so sort of the whole ecosystem, uh, one by one goes out of balance and then it, it, things start to impact people with the boils and, and it finally, the, and then the agriculture is hit with the hail and the locusts, and finally with the death of the firstborn. Um, and so one ecological teaching of that is that, you know, God brought these plagues one by one had Pharaoh relented and said, "Oh, you know, I'll let the people go then, the the rest of the plagues wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have come to the death of the firstborn. And and that's our situation today that we are bringing upon ourselves ecological plagues by changing the climate and causing biodiversity loss. But we have the choice about to what extent we want to experience these these self-inflicted plagues. And it even relates to the coronavirus because one ecological message in it is that it emerged from animal market in, in Wuhan. And, uh, and, and we have to remember that there are 80 billion animals in factory farming. So you know, one practical teaching from this is that we can, we can change our ways. And, and one thing that I think the coronavirus pandemic is messaging to us is that we can change our relationship to animals, uh, to what extent we eat them, to what extent we eat their milk and their eggs. Um, these are you know, deep things that are coming from, from coronavirus.
0: So I went, I went to the website and poked around and there's this great picture of you with the Pope. Um, can you talk about how you, you know, how sort of the theory of change of your work and the levels you're working on, how, how did you come to meet with the Pope and why? You know, what's the impact you're hoping for this work to have?
1: I was fortunate to meet with the Pope. Uh, I went uh, on a trip to Rome and participated in a conference on religion and ecology the Vatican convened. Uh, and and the Va- Pope Francis, as many people know, uh, wrote a, a book, what's called an encyclical on religion and ecology, on Catholic teachings and ecology. And um, and that was already five years ago. And, and he's been an outspoken advocate on these issues. So at this conference, um, there, the people who attended the conference had the opportunity to Meet with um, him briefly, and uh, and I was fortunate to be one of them. Uh, and you know, there's 1.6 billion Catholics in the world, and if we're going to reach sustainability, it's going to need to be with the active involvement of religious communities uh, in the world. About 85 percent of people affiliate with a religion. That's over six billion people. And you know, if, if you look back to when the countries started negotiating on climate change back in 1992 every year since then, almost 30 years, emissions have gone up every year. And I think part of the reason for that is because faith communities have not been sufficiently involved. And that's, so that's the work of my organization to reveal the connection between religion and ecology and motivate people to act.
0: And so like in, in the Jewish community and in the Catholic community, um, what are some other religious and spiritual communities and community leaders you had the opportunity to interface with? And what's your sense of uh, how that work is going?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what, you know, sometimes people say the scientists are wrong about the environmental scientists are wrong, uh, or the climate scientists are wrong, that that, that, that science is incorrect. Um, so it's one thing to argue with the scientists. Um, but it's another thing to also argue with the spiritual leaders of our generation. If you look at the, the key spiritual leaders, whether it's Pope Francis or ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew I of the Orthodox Church or the Dalai Lama Thich Han, who wrote a book, um, Love Letter to the Earth, or the Dalai Lama just had a, did a session with Greta on climate impacts, or Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs a Blessed Memory. You know, the heavy hitters in religion are, are speaking with one voice that we need to wake up and, and live differently and and change our ways. And they're, they're in resonance with the scientists. So, and, and so therefore, you know, it's, it's one thing to argue and say the scientists are wrong, but it's another thing to say the scientists and the religious leaders are wrong, but I'm right. So that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do is to amplify the voice of religious communities and clergy to speak and preach more frequently on this topic.
0: Okay. So now I have to ask like, what has been, if any, um, your, your relationship with some of the, um, I mean, I'm thinking about in America, you've got religious communities that are actually pretty committed, uh, by ideology to refute science and to make the Bible say what they would like it to say, which is, um, not that we are here to serve the earth and protect it, but, um, to dominate it. Right, like what we get in Genesis one to master the earth and and fill it, right, and and then use that in the service of saying like God wants us to mine fossil fuels. God wants us to chop down trees and do logging to build up our to build up our world. Like God will fit if there's a pollution's a problem, God will intervene. So like, how do you speak to that?
1: So I think what you're touching on is is actually a very deep thing that. The ecological crisis is not a crisis of the birds and the bees or the trees and the toads it's a crisis of how we live as spiritual beings in the physical reality it's actually a crisis of religion because there are you know many uh, religious adherents whether in the Christian community or Jewish community or Muslim community or other religious communities who have theological beliefs that god is going to take care of us no matter what we do and we can despoil the planet and God wants us to extract as much of the resources as exist here, uh, and and you know it'll it's okay, um, and and then you know when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will just wave a wand and all the ecological problems will will go away, um, and that's that's a, a you know a strongly held theological view. I strongly disagree with it, and you know and, and there's also uh, this thing called uh, prosperity theology. Uh, that God gives us abundance for us to use. And, you know, America is, is probably the most resource abundant country in the world. And that's part of why it's the richest country in the world. And at the same time, there are other teachings in, in, in the Torah and, and in other religious uh, teachings that emphasize moderation, humility, long-term thinking, caring for the other. And and therefore, you know, some people say, well, with fossil fuels, if God put it in the earth, then shouldn't we use it? Um, but the same argument you could say about uranium. Does God want us to, to everyone to have a nuclear bomb? <laughs> like, obviously not. And so therefore, we, we're meant to use things wisely with, in, in consciousness, in kedushah, in holiness. And that's, that's, this, that's part of our spiritual work. That, you know, part of the message is that ecological sustainable living is spiritual living. The two go hand in hand and and living more mindfully and more spiritually is a way to live a more ecologically sustainable life because we'll, we'll seek less in consumption. We will seek to fulfill our pleasure desire less in going to the mall and buying things that we don't really need and more in family and community and spirituality.
0: Well, Kenny here at zone, like, May, may, that, may that be so, may that message infiltrate all the places that it needs to be heard. What are some of the biggest challenges in your work? I mean, like I hear you talk and I'm like, yeah, like we need more of what he's doing. Like all of us need more of what you're doing. Um, and I, I imagine your work is just an endless uphill battle <laughs> that requires incredible inner fortitude and resilience. So probably the answer to this question could be a very long one, but like, what's, what's one of the biggest challenges that you feel like you face in your work of trying to thread these two realms, you know, of religion and environment or science together for the benefit of the planet and humanity?
1: You know, it it is an uphill battle. It's like swimming upstream because the mainstream in society is, is embracing a consumer lifestyle that's emphasizing you know, the pleasure principle and, and instant self-gratification. Um, and so I therefore try to reinforce and, and sort of affirm that I'm, I do my part, but the result is not in my power. It's not up to me to save the world. Sometimes people come up to me and, and they say, I'm so glad you're saving the world. <laughs> and I, and I say to them, you know, th- thank you. And, um, I'm trying to do my part, uh, but it's not up to me to save the world. Um, uh, I'm just a shaliach, a, a sent one, or a, a channel, a messenger, um, and a partner with God, or as, as someone else put it, an undercover agent for God, although I, I blow my cover from time to time. Um, and, and therefore, you know, I, I choose to believe that I'm not alone, and that there are other people out there. I mean, I think one of the challenges for humanity today is that the ecological voice within humanity is, is, a, is a tiny voice. It, you know, I would say one in a hundred people, one in 200 people really feel uh, that you know, ec- ecology and, and living sustainably and ensuring that the next generation inherits a livable planet is a, is a top priority. Um, and, and so I think that to sort of reach a tipping point, we don't have to reach 50% of humanity but we need to reach a critical mass. Uh, And I think in order to do that, we need to raise our level of soul awareness. I mean, and this is what you're doing at Mishkan Chicago that that humanity, you know, we have five levels of soul, nefesh, ruach, neshama, chiyah, and yechida. And and our, our, our spiritual work is to raise our level of soul awareness so that we care more for other people and for other creatures. And when we do that, I think that we'll address some of the spiritual roots of the ecological crisis and some of the, the issues you know of, uh, that we're dealing with that are really symptoms of the problem will then be, be addressed more at their root.
0: So, you referred back to Parshat Bo a minute ago. What, uh, what's like a, a message from, from this week's Parsha that might be a good one to leave us with?
1: Yeah, so Parshat B'Shalach is a really deep ecological Parsha, it's of going through the sea. And, and, and being in the water. The, the sea is like a birth canal, and the, the Israelites are walking through it and in and, and some ways are, are being rebirthed on the other side in, in the desert, and, and then they come into the desert, and there's no water. They, they, they walk through with salt water on both sides, and then they find themselves in the desert with no water, and they complain to Moses and and, and then begins this whole f- process of, of living in the desert and uh, and finding water and having water gifted to them. You know, sometimes my kids uh, wonder about why we need to turn off the water faucet because the water will come out of the water faucet seemingly infinitely. There's no stopping. It seems like there's an infinite pool of water. Um, and it's, but as we know, water actually comes from certain places, whether it's Lake Michigan or elsewhere, and therefore we need to conserve water and we need to appreciate God for the water that we have in our lives. one of the when we say a bracha, blessing, so that word also relates to the word brecha, which means pool or pool of water. That it's, it's as if God is like an infinite pool. So that's, you know, one thing is, is thinking about water and, and Miriam's well that accompanied the Israelites during their time in the desert as a, as a source of blessing for them and giving them water. Those are a, f- a couple ecological linkages.
0: And I'm thinking about like the celebrating they do at the end of like getting, you know, sort of in between this rock and this hard place and walking through the salt water on both sides. They get over here before they encounter the no water over here. They stop and they sing and just. You know, thinking about celebrating the small wins along the way, because this is hard work. I mean, this is, as you said, like a hard, hard uphill battle. It's like swimming upstream. And something really that you taught me as undergrads is the value of stopping for Shabbat. So I think it was you who actually taught me to shut off my phone, like turn it off and live in the world and be with people, you know? Um, so for, for everybody watching, if you're wondering like, cause you've heard, pe- people at kind have heard me talk about how like, I didn't grow up in a house where we did Shabbat dinner. I didn't grow up in a house where we kept kosher. I didn't grow up in a house where we did very much Jewish. A lot of what I learned, I learned from hanging out with you and the Kosher Co-op c- crew um, and sort of watching what it looks like once a week to put away the fast pace of life that both comes through the screen and comes through the way that we live, um, and the pace of you know both both productivity and consumption that we think has to be the way that it is, and we show ourselves a different way to be, and a way that connects us to other human beings with whom we're in close proximity, a way of singing, a way of like having a good time that does not involve, I don't know, skydiving or roller coasters, whatever it is that you know like we we think, you know, driving a fast car, flying in a plane, whatever it is that we think brings is supposed to bring us that kind of like immediate gratification that we can actually get that by being in community with people, by singing, um, by celebrating. And that fortifies us for the productivity and, and for whatever the, uh, you know, the, the thing is that we're doing, that's hard, that requires endurance. Thank you for teaching me that.
1: You're welcome. And I think you're right on that. You know, since we, we were at college together 20 years ago, it's, you know, the, the world of technology has changed radically. I mean, just this week I downloaded the app Signal because someone wanted to communicate with me on, on that. It's like, and that's like a whole new world of, you know, and, and I, I, I personally, you know, the world of email and WhatsApp and Facebook is, is draining. And, and, and news, um, and there's a, there's a movie called The Social Dilemma that talks about that, that the designers of these technologies didn't really have the, the long-term wisdom to realize what would happen to people if they use these technologies for many years.
0: What would happen and, to democracies? What would happen to nations? Yeah.
1: Right, and, and so I think that you know, the, the spiritual practice of Shabbat has even become more relevant in our times in terms of, you know, shutting off from, from email and, and WhatsApp and social media and, and news and turning inward uh, to oneself, whether that's through prayer and singing and meditation or going for a walk in nature uh, or having meals with people. I mean, in the pandemic, you know, it's not as possible, but to, to have an in-person meal with, to share a meal with people, it's like, Like that's like Mm -hmm. meino olam haba. It's like a taste of the Garden of Eden. Uh, That you know, and that's that's how life is supposed to be. So Shabbat and Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach said that you know some people think that they 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 work and then Shabbat is like a time for resting, Um, but actually we work in order to to have this spiritual experience on Shabbat. That's the pinnacle of the week.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I really look forward to to being able to have that pinnacle peak experience and community here in Chicago. I look forward to one day, you know, being able to come visit you in Jerusalem and and celebrate Shabbat with you too. Um Amazing. Thank you. this has been so lovely. And thank you so much for hanging out with us. Yonatan.
1: Welcome. Thanks for everything that you do.
0: Been listening to Contact Chai, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago, an independent Jewish spiritual community and part of the Jewish Emergent Network. Thank you for tuning into this special Tubishvat episode with my guest Rabbi Yonatan Narel of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. You can learn more about Yonatan and his life's work in our show notes. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Leaving a review is the best way to show your support for the show. We really appreciate the feedback that we get from reading them. With that in mind, we thought we'd end the show with one lovely review we recently received. Busy Artist 24 wrote, "'A fresh look through a Jewish lens. Rabbi Lizzie, the Mishkan staff, and podcast guests are the best. I'm not one for services, but I relish Jewish thoughts and ideas. Lizzie and her cohort present them in a wise and approachable way. I've had a takeaway that I needed to share from every episode.'" well, thank you, busy artist. That just makes my day. Stay tuned for more episodes coming your way in 2021. And until then, be well. Cold tube. All the best, everybody.